All right, welcome back, students, to Lecture 13, Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, Book 17 and 18, Slides 226 to 250. This is like the first time ever that you have more slides than uh, English 10 does. So, let's keep moving. Odysseus enters the palace with Eumaeus. Now, just to give you a quick background to remember where you are. Odysseus made it from the Phaeacians to Ithaca, talked to Athena, and she put him in disguise as a beggar. He then went to meet Eumaeus, almost got mauled by his dogs, and uh, Telemachus made his way back to that home called Eumaeus' father several times, three times, right in front of Odysseus, probably emotionally painful for Odysseus. Something to keep in mind, this theme for the last ten books of the Odyssey, books 14 through 24, as Odysseus goes through Ithaca, is what sorts of pains and struggles is he enduring now? Obviously, he has gone through very fantastic and terrible ones. He's been in the Iliad and fought man against man and against the Caconis. He's fought against Cyclopes, giants that he could never defeat, Lystragones as well, Scylla and Charybdis, watching his own men die and having to hang from a fig branch, the branch of a fig tree above Charybdis, while also later starving in Thrinachia and twice, twice having to, on the open sea, be on a simple piece of debris from a ship that had been destroyed. He has gone through a lot, and yet, has any of that prepared him? For the emotional turmoil that he will deal with here. Seeing his own son call another man father. Seeing his own servants mistreat him and physically abuse him. Seeing men whose fathers he helped and saved uh, talk to him with utter disrespect. What are the worst sorts of pains that humans deal with? Are they physical pains or are they humiliations? Something worth thinking about as we get here. And so also recall that Odysseus just dealt with a very sad thing. And I recently read an article that suggests, and I think this is sort of sad for multiple reasons, that sometimes people can get more attached to their dogs than to other humans. And, I mean, it certainly is true that I care more about my personal dog than, like, some human I don't know. But I wouldn't say that I like my dog more than, say, uh, you, uh, somebody who I have a personal relationship with. That said, Argos was his dog, and he waited 20 years to see his uh, master come back. And he was on a giant uh, uh, pile of feces covered in ticks, and we said that that was sort of a metaphor for what Ithaca is, a place that has gone to sea, that has become, um, uh, if I were to be vulgar, I would say a dung hole, uh, but I don't want to be vulgar, and, uh, and is now uh, filled with blood suckers that do not contribute anything, but suck out the resources, and those are the suitors. Well, Odysseus saw this noble fine dog turned to, uh, gone to sea, and he saw him die right in front of him, and this is what he sees right before he enters the palace, his palace, but really the suitor's palace now. Because is this even Odysseus's home if his power is not respected? If the Xenia is not respected? Is it a home at all? Or is this a hostile enemy camp? These are the questions we go into Odysseus's home with. And so, Odysseus enters the palace with Eumaeus. Not great company as far as the suitors are concerned. They are people of rank. Eumaeus is obviously a slave. He just brings them their food. He's their server or servant. They don't think highly of him. They don't think highly of this beggar he brings. They like when he brings tasty food and pigs. They don't like when he brings another mouth to feed, which I think is very interesting and hypocritical because obviously do they pay for the food that they eat? Is that their food? No. And you might as well bring that up to Antinous in a slide or two. So the only person to notice this new stranger in honor of the Zinnia is, of course, Telemachus, just as he had been the only person to notice Mentes. When uh, Mentes had come in the very first book, recall that Mentes was actually Athena in disguise. And uh, the Telemachus again shows that he has learned something 
during his childhood, but also during his travels to Pylos and Sparta. He has learned that when a guest comes, you offer them hospitality. And he is apparently the only person here who is willing to do that. So he brings food to this guest, although he does know that it's, of course, Odysseus and this is part of the plan. Telemachus then commands Eumaeus to tell Odysseus that he may beg from the assembled suitors. So what is Odysseus going to do here? He's going to have to humiliate and humble himself and go around like a beggar to each and every one of the suitors and ask for food. In so doing, he will judge the heart of each of these men. He will get a feel for what these people are like. Which suitors are fair? Who is unfair? If he wants to make a judgment about someone, he does it himself. He does not just rely on their kleos or their reputation. And, you know, think about him. He's such a fantastic storyteller and liar. He understands that the story about somebody can be very different from the person themselves. Uh, and he is a good example of that, having told a tremendous lie about how he is named Ithon and from Crete recently and is in some way related to Idomeneus. Well, 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 well. We recall that Melanthios, after kicking Odysseus, had made it to the, uh, the, the house, not the castle. We imagine castles when we think about kings, but he doesn't have a castle. It's more like a manor, more like a mansion than it is like a medieval Gothic palace. And we recall that Melanthios had then gone into the house and had sat next to his favorite Eurymachus, probably because Eurymachus is a bully like Melanthios, and Melanthios thinks that Eurymachus will protect him. We'll see how that works. Oh, we will see how that works. In any case, Antinous then scolds Eumaeus. Why have you brought this beggar here who uh, no one has benefited? Or, or why have you brought this beggar here who brings no benefit to anyone? And well, Eumaeus is very quick to respond to Antinous. Uh, what are you talking about? Uh, 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 bringing a beggar here who just eats and benefits no one. You, more than anyone, over the last three years, have come to this house and eating this food. If somebody were to chastise another person for being a beggar and eating up the food in this house, it would be probably me or Penelope or Telemachus about you. And so uh, Antinous has uh, an equality sign, uh, an equal sign, put between him and uh, this beggar, because how is he different from a beggar? He doesn't bring food, he doesn't bring gifts, he comes and he consumes, and that's all that he does. He is uh, sort of like a perpetual child in this way, taking, taking, and never giving, except for insult, which is sort of like a negative thing to give anyway. Telemachus says, don't even worry about Antinous. It's very interesting how he says that. It's almost mature, but it's also digging, cutting. Uh, don't, don't worry about him. Uh, and uh, also what Eumaeus says, and this is a direct quote, I should have already said it, you are more eager to eat than to give to another. And I think that is the essence of Antinous and the suitors themselves. They, like perpetual children, want to be receiving the gifts of Santa. They never want to become the provider of gifts. They never want to become Santa. They never make that transition from being child to adult. And in fact, Aristotle, who we will read later in the year, says uh, in book four of his Nicomachean Ethics, that the great-souled man, the megalosuchia, prefers to give than to receive. And I think that that's a, that's a very bold statement and something uh, that you should consider. Is that the difference between a mature and immature person? Immature people are always waiting with their hands out to receive the next gift, whereas mature people are always working to fashion the next gift that they will give to someone else. Is that the difference? Is that a major difference between a child and an adult, an immature person and a mature person? Are you the provider? Or are you the person for whom uh, things are provided? In any case, 
Antinous, Antinous is then struck by these words. You will see that he's a, he is uh, made of much less sturdy stuff than Odysseus. Whereas Odysseus can take insult after insult, hit after hit. Uh, Antinous and Eurymachus, for that matter, and m most of the suitors you should take uh, as very similar to them, they have very thin skin. They can't take insults, even from someone lowly like a beggar. <coughs> so Antinous first, just in order to disprove Telemachus, does give some food. But Odysseus tests Antinous when he comes up to him to ask for food. And he, he makes a comment to him. And uh, just like he had said to Euryalus of the Phaeacians, he says, your wits don't match your beauty. You're so handsome. You look like a noble person. But how do you act? And the things you say, I just, uh, they don't match up. And this really gets under Antinous' skin, probably because he sees a hint of truth in what's being said. And so he picks up a footstool, proving Odysseus right here, and throws it at him. This is a picture. Of, that looks more like a chair. Uh, here, this is a little better. Can you see that? Throwing that footstool. But Antinous, I don't think he'd look that bad. I think this is a much better idea. Though Odysseus looks a little upset here. It does hit uh, Odysseus in the shoulder, but it says that he does not move. He is unrocked, just like Melanthius' kick to his uh, hip. All right, quick review. Don't write this. Uh, or rather, if you do write this, start writing at E. That's what you need to write. All right, quick review. We met Melanthius. He's a goat herd. He kicked Odysseus in the hip. We met Argos. That was Odysseus's dog. 20 years old or so, was sleeping on feces, uh, wagged his tail and raised his head when he saw Odysseus, was covered in ticks. We said those were a metaphor for uh, the suitors, and they're, uh, they're sucking the life out of Ithaca, the resources out of Ithaca. And uh, then we made it into the house. Antinous was compared to a beggar, got upset at Odysseus, threw a footstool at him, and now, now, that is a brazen offense against the Xenia. This is a beggar. He is asking for food. He is in the care of Zeus, therefore. He is in the care of the god that honors the household. And uh, Antinous, who does not even live in that household, has now struck this man. That is an act of violence. That's an act uh, that produces conflict. That is, in a way, a causa belli, a, uh, an act of war. This spooks the suitors. Now, all their eating up of Odysseus's food, that's one thing. That is, in a way, stealing. That is cupidity on their part. That is taking something that is not theirs. That is not a, in accordance with the Zinni. But it is not quite as direct and flagrant an act as physically assaulting someone in their own home. Publicly, too. All these people see this. The maids see this. The, um, the singer, Phineas, can see this. Uh, now they've gone a step too far. They've crossed the line and everybody can feel it. It's just like when someone yells out something in, like, say, a classroom or an environment and everybody gets silent and everybody, it feels awkward for, like, ten seconds before you get back going the way you're supposed to. Everybody's just silent. Let's sit in an awkward silence for a moment and pretend like it's our next seminar with our new two leaders. It's not even awkward enough because we all expect to go. But you all know that awkward silence, right? In any case... Penelope then hears of this, and then directly prays to Apollo that he strike down this man. That's how serious an offense it is, because she obviously can't strike him down herself. She doesn't quite have the strength or skill with arms to do it, but she can hope that Apollo kills him. Interestingly enough, I'll tell you this. Apollo, which uh, weapon is he known to fight with, kills people at night with it usually? Yes? The bow. The bow. Antinous will die by a shot from the bow. So in a way, you might say that Apollo will guide the arrow that will kill Antinous. He will die in a spectacular way. So uh, 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 we'll learn about that next week. So stay tuned.
Even the nurse of Penelope, and recall that her nurse is different from Odysseus's nurse. Odysseus and Telemachus share the same nurse, Eurycleia. She has the nurse that sounds same or similar, Eurynome. Even she prays for the death of the suitors. You can see how people's opinions of the suitors are getting more and more negative. More and more people have ill will towards them. More and more people are wishing for them to go away or to die. More and more portents are building up, suggesting the deaths of the suitors. And even the suitors themselves are getting uncomfortable in their own shoes. You might think that they, some of them would take a, take a hint and stop doing what they're doing. None of them will take a hint. Alright. Penelope then commands, after hearing this, that Eumaeus bring the mistreated beggar to her. She wants to talk to this guy. In fact, Eumaeus will end up telling Penelope, well, there are a couple reasons why you might want to talk to this guy. Not only because he was just brought to your house and mistreated, but he actually claims to have some information on Odysseus. You have told me that whenever a stranger comes to this land and has information on Odysseus, even though they've all been liars and Odysseus has not come back, that uh, uh, you would like to see them, even though it will probably just get your hopes up, just to have them dash again. Although uh, he could not know that that would certainly not be true in this case. And just look at how he describes Odysseus. I'm going to start preparing you for one of the most famous scenes in the entire book, which we will be talking about in our very next lecture, which is when Odysseus, still in disguise, sits across from Penelope and has a conversation with her. There has been an endless amount of scholarship written about this. Does Penelope know that the man in front of her is actually her husband or not? And so I'm going to start giving you evidence on both sides and not take a position. Because it's really hard to say. Some years I teach this text, it looks like Penelope clearly knows that this guy is her husband. Sometimes I teach this text, it looks like she doesn't have any idea. And there seems to be conflicting information. Sometimes there's information that suggests that she does understand. Sometimes there's information that suggests that she doesn't understand. And so uh, I leave it to your judgment, and perhaps we can even start talking about that here. But look at what Eumaeus says about this man. If you were trying to figure out whether a person in your midst was Odysseus, these are the things you would listen for. This is an enchanting singer. A teller of tales who met and saw Odysseus near Thesprotia. An enchanting singer, a teller of tales. There aren't that many people who tell great stories in their world or in any world. That's why we pay so much money to go see great stories and why great stories will make uh, a billion dollars these days. Uh, not that Star Wars or the new one really is a great story. People do pay lots of money to produce the new Star Wars and lots of people in droves will go to watch it. In fact, it's made something like... Uh, uh, a billion dollars at this point. Definitely over a hundred million. I need to look at the actual numbers. But, like, we pay money for stories. And we've even seen storytellers. Demodocus, from the fire cans, given the pork tenderloin, the finest uh, cut of meat. That's like a, it's a very tender part of the thigh, essentially. So if there's some beggar who's just shown up, and he tells really great stories, I wonder who he could be. Perhaps someone who's known for telling great stories. But he's probably dead anyway. It couldn't be Odysseus. Or could it? In any case, summon him up. Summon this man up. Wow. And this is so interesting. I've been, we've been talking about all the portents that have been mounting up. Uh, Helen sees a couple birds and interprets that as uh, uh, the suitors are soon going to die. Theoclymenus has also said that Odysseus is back on Ithaca. And now Telemachus sneezes. And it's so interesting. Different cultures have different ideas on sneezes. We in the West, what do we say when someone sneezes? 
Bless you, yes. Uh, and that comes from a medieval idea. This is an old wives' tale that when you sneeze, your, your breath, people think that your soul is in your breath. They used to think that. And in fact, the old word uh, um, animos, from which we get the Latin's got the word anima, which means soul, meant breath or, or, or wind as well. And you know, often when you, if you watch a movie and somebody's just been drowning in the water uh, and they're taken out, people will check to see if they're still breathing. In any case, in the medieval tradition, the idea was that when you sneezed, your soul went out of your body for a moment. And the devil could get in during that moment. And so you very quickly say what to someone to make sure that that can't happen. Bless you. Or God bless you. And then it's like, okay, the devil didn't get into you. Yeah. And uh, uh, I've even heard an Arabic folktale. My, my friend, who I used to work with uh, 10 years ago, said that uh, if you sneeze, the idea is that somebody's talking about you. Somebody's talking about you behind your back. And I think that's very interesting. So you know now like an Arab tale, a medieval western tale. And here's, here's an ancient Greek one. Telemachus sneezes, and Penelope interprets this as death for the suitors. Maybe she wants to interpret it that way. Perhaps sneezes at that time indicated that, I don't know, uh, some wind was going to come through and clean up a situation. I have no idea, really. But that is what she interprets. Uh, and so, okay, well, she is right, but that sneeze didn't seem like much of a portent. I mean, we have seen like things like eagles eating or killing geese. That seems far more symbolic than just a sneeze. Achoo. I hope no one dies. And she says she will give a tunic and a mantle to this man if what he says is true, this beggar, which I think is an interesting connection because remember, Eumaeus, uh, Odysseus had made an agreement with him. If Odysseus comes back, like I've said, give me a tunic and a mantle. And if he doesn't, toss me over the cliff. And Eumaeus didn't make that part of the agreement. He said, oh, that wouldn't be much Zinnia. What would people say about me then? Uh, I don't want to do that. But, remember, uh, Odysseus is going around and asking for humbly th humble things. Tunics and mantles. Alright. I will tell everything truly, for I know well about him. We have suffered the same sad story. Very interesting thing there. Let me come to her at night when the suitors have left for sleep. So this is Eumaeus going back down to Odysseus. And then uh, hearing... Uh, I will tell everything truly, for I know well about him. He's talking about Odysseus. We have suffered the same sad story. That's, that's very clever of Odysseus. He's saying, yeah, I have a lot to say about Odysseus, and I really empathize with Odysseus, because I've gone through the same things Odysseus has gone through. And he doesn't add in the last part that he could, which is, of course, that, because I am Odysseus. And so, Penelope has commanded him to come upstairs immediately, to come talk to her. It's during the day. The suitors are around. Now, this beggar, again, there's some... There's something weird about him. He's an enchanting singer. And he said, and I just changed the slide. And, uh, and he tells stories, but he's apparently also a thinker. Even though he's been given a direct command from a queen, and he is but a beggar, he tells you, Mice, well, maybe now isn't the best time to go up there for a couple reasons. A, the suitors are all around, and they might harass me and harass her if I go up there. Wouldn't it be better if uh, we waited until they all left for the day? went home, back to their homes at night, and then I went and talked to her at night. And there's just so much there to unpack. A, he's not taking a direct command. He's suggesting that his thought is in some way better than Penelope's. Uh, when Eumaeus goes back to Penelope and hears this, she's going to be uh, uh, flabbergasted that this uh, beggar has um, uh, decided that his idea is in some way better than hers, and it is better than hers. But there's also another element in there. 
This is a husband returning to his wife. There's an element of romance. When you want to go out with your friend, you go out to coffee during the day. When you want to go out on a date with someone, when do you go out? You go out at night. You go out for a date at night. So there's a sort of an element of romance here. This beggar is going to get to go see Penelope at night at a time when these suitors never have. And so he's already showing that he's got something that gets him something. He's got something more than these men, these boys, that gets him somewhere that they have never been. Perhaps that thing is intelligence. In any case, Eumaeus explains the beggar's reasoning and Penelope assents after uh, Penelope says, a bashful vagabond makes a bad beggar. She's like, why is he so embarrassed about things? He seems like a bad beggar. Almost suggesting that she thinks, is this guy even really a beggar? Does he even know how to be a beggar? Perhaps Odysseus doesn't. He has never truly been one. But he has played the part a couple times now. Remember, that's how he got into uh, Troy. And Helen told us about this. Well, Eumaeus then returns to his home. He's done his work. After warning Telemachus of the evil will of the suits, he says, son, you know, watch out for these guys. They definitely want to kill you. We know they want to kill you. You know, do your best. All right, bam, book 18. Now let's shift gears. We know that Odysseus soon is going to get to talk to Penelope. But uh, in suspension of that action, this is a masterful narrative technique. Odysse uh, Homer doesn't let us get straight to that. So we're all anticipating this conversation between Odysseus and Penelope. Is she going to see through his disguise? What's it going to be like? Are they going to smooch? We, we have all these questions. Is he going to keep tricking her? Is she going to cry in front of him? Is he going to try and hug her? Or is he going to have to stand his ground, just like when his dog died, when he couldn't even go pet him one last time? Oof, rough stuff. Well, now we have an intermezzo. Uh, we hear, boom, there is another beggar around. This is like the evil version of Odysseus. And his name is Arnaeus. But he goes by the name Eros. Why Eros? Well, that's the masculine version of the name Iris. Iris, as you recall, is the name of the messenger goddess who serves Hera in the Iliad. And so, why is he called Eros? Because A, he's male, not female, and B, because he runs messages between uh, the suitors. And it's actually very interesting. Beggars often have done this throughout history. If you read the old uh, 19th century Arthur Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes often uses street urchins, uh, young, like, poor, begging boys to run messages for him. They have some use. Now we have text messages, so we don't need that. In any case, this Eros, he sees Odysseus, and he immediately addresses Odysseus with an insult. You're a beggar, I'm a beggar, there's only room for one beggar. Odysseus calls him strange, tries to deflect his attention, says there's room for both of us. Unless, of course, you want a bashing. And the suitors, they've all heard this, and they see these beggars talking to each other, and their little wicked selves start to fill with glee. Oh, one beggar's kind of talking smack to another beggar. This might lead to a conflict. This might lead to fun. All of a sudden, some popcorn gets handed to Antinous. He's like, oh, yeah, that's good. They didn't have popcorn at that time. But he might eat some nice lamb. In any case, Eros challenges Odysseus to a fight, and he says he will knock his teeth out. Just to give you some context, this picture here, Antinous, Eurymachus, look at him, looking all gleefully at this wicked display. And uh, that's Odysseus. That's Eros right there. <laughs> Something to keep in mind. As we know from Menelaus' description of uh, Philomeliades, uh, Odysseus is an extremely talented fighter. He is an extremely talented wrestler. He has defeated uh, uh, actually excellent wrestlers. This 
out-of-shape old beggar does not stand a chance against him, and yet he's talking so much smack against him. You might say that this is a, a smaller version, a corollary, of all the suitors talking so much smack to Odysseus, who have no chance of actually physically defeating him, nor ruling a country as well as he could, nor even raising a, a kid or being a husband like he could, though he doesn't have a lot of experience with either of those because of the Trojan War, sadly enough. In any case, Antinous says, whoever wins may stay and receive a goat punch. You might just imagine that it's like a bowl of tasty meat soup, um, which a beggar would very much want to eat. Remember, anytime you get to eat meat in this ancient world, it's a good day, because they didn't always get to eat it. That's why the heroes in the Iliad, every time you see them eat, they eat meat, because that would have been the idea of a common Greek person of how a hero lived. They eat meat every meal. How many of you eat meat in every single meal of your life? I do. And it's great. So we live better than ancient Greek heroes. Isn't that great? And we can also turn on the lights and have running water. I mean, they didn't have any of that. Alright. Uh, <laughs> I always show this picture just because in years past, we uh, uh, most of the young men would always comment on the physical descriptions of Odysseus. Something you often hear about him is that he has wide shoulders. But they, what they would always focus on is that he actually has big thighs. That's something that everybody remarks on to him. He has really big legs. And, well, you know, if you are a wrestler or a football player, you know, I'll tell you two things. Those are the seed of your strength and power, your hip strength. And In fact, if you become an NFL scout or talk to an NFL scout, the physical uh, part of the body that they look at to see whether someone can be strong enough to be an NFL athlete is actually their uh, gluteus maximus. It's the size of their butt. And, uh, well, so, look at Odysseus here in this picture. Looks He's got some pretty bright, broad shoulders, but what's he got a giant thing of? His thigh. He's got big old legs. And this is, in some way, obscured to Eros and to, um, and to Antinous. This sort of reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, kung fu movies from the old 70s. It's like when the guy is wearing a cloak, and then he takes it off, and it's like, bang, he's ripped. Whoa, didn't expect that. That's what happens to everybody with Odysseus. Even though he looks like an old beggar, when he takes off his old, uh, dingy-looking beggar clothes, he all of a sudden is, he's beast, as we would say. And Eros gets pretty scared. Alright, uh, do I want those or no? No, you don't need to see that. Alright, whoever swear? Okay, so, A is important here. Before the fight goes down, Odysseus always intelligent, making sure the rules are followed. He understands that this is a hostile situation, and nobody is in, at his back here. He doesn't have any allies. Sort of Telemachus, but there are a lot more suitors than Telemachus. So he makes sure that the suitors are going to follow the rules. They might, uh, while he's fighting, decide that they don't like him. And they might join in the fight. And while he can easily dispatch one beggar hand-to-hand, uh, -hand, if a bunch of suitors decide to kick him in the head and attack him uh, while he's fighting, he's not going to stand much of a chance. So he says, uh, suitors swear not to help Eros. They do swear. And then he says, okay, now I'll fight. Telemachus then, alongside Antinous and Eurymachus, guarantees this oath. I think it's very important to notice, again, Telemachus is more and more inputting him in, himself into leadership situations. He's sitting at his own table with Halitherses and Mentor. He is now saying that he is guaranteeing that nobody will break this oath. Not just Antinous and Eurymachus, who are the heads of the suitors. He's saying that there's another sheriff in town right now. And, well, if there are three sheriffs in town, there's only supposed to be one. Two have got to go. We'll see how it happens. In any case... Odysseus then girds up his loins. This is an ancient term. Uh, because of the sort of clothing they wore, they would actually, a, this is correct, 
they would like take their tunic down and they would tie it around their uh, their. It's like taking a dress and tying it and to make it shorts so that you can move around a little bit better. And actually, if you ever go to the Art of Manliness. Uh, dot com. They have an actual article on how to gird your loins if you ever uh, want to wear ancient Greek outfits and then wrestle, I suppose. In any case, he girds up his clothing and the suitors remark it how powerfully he's built. Like, Whoa, look at this guy. He's a beggar, but it looks like he's been hitting the beggar gem. In any case, Eros trembles when he sees him. We've seen trembling before. Remember Hector when he first saw Aias the Greater when they were going to do one-on-one uh, -on -one combat. He was like, Ooh. And Diomedes even once seen Hector uh, trembled as well. And of course also Dolon right before he got his head chopped off. Chopped off. <clears throat> but Eros trembles and begins to lose his nerve. Doesn't want to fight anymore now that he sees that the odds are not in his favor. Not a great character we would say. But Antinous scolds him and threatens to send him to King Akatos. Now King Akatos is like some ancient Greek boogeyman. He is some uh, king off in the distance who treats people with no zinnia. In fact, if you go to his house, he's sort of like the Lystragones or the Cyclopes. He'll cut off your nose. He'll cut off your ears. He'll cut off your hands. He'll cut off your feet. And lastly, if you're a man, he'll cut off your man parts, too. And so, cuts you down to size. And you don't, you don't want to go to King Akatos. I want you to remember what I said about King Akatos. Because even though he's a boogeyman, the things he does are very real. And perhaps someone else will do what King Echitos was claimed to do before the end of this text. Oh, we've got to answer this. Back. All right. Back to the slide about the thigh. So, Eros is scared for good reason. He has now seen the thigh of Odysseus and the shoulders of Odysseus, and he is trembling. But something worse will happen if he doesn't fight, which he will get sent to this King Echitos, who will cut off all sorts of parts of him that he would like to keep. In any case, here's another picture of Odysseus versus Eros. I really like, you can see the face of Eros here. He looks pretty shocked. Oh my gosh, how did this happen? I was talking all sorts of smack, and now I'm getting beaten up. I could have never foreseen this result. The fight itself. Odysseus. The first thought he has in his head is, should I outright kill this guy with a punch, just like Achilles with Thersites, or should I hold back and hit him in the shoulder? Uh, or not the shoulder. He'll actually hit him in the neck, right below the jaw. It dislocates his jaw, and blood supposedly pours out of uh, uh, Eros' mouth. It's the best thing to come out of his mouth all day. You know what I mean? In any case, uh, because of all the things he said, he's very much like, does Eros remind you a bit of Thersites from the Iliad? I think that he should. Sort of a weak uh, commoner who, is, uh, who, who talks a big game but walks a, a very limited walk. In any case, Odysseus thinks if he outright punches this guy and kills him, that it will be a little bit suspicious. He will seem like somebody far more than a beggar, like a nobleman who has fighting training, as he clearly does. So he hits Eros in the neck under the ear, breaks his jaw, drops Eros to the ground, drooling blood, drags Eros out of the house. And so, you know, this is part of his janitorial or his custodial duties as a king returning. He's taking out the trash, as it were. And the suitors, while he's doing this, are dying with laughter. I use that expression meaningfully. They're laughing, 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 laughing. And they laugh as if they're laughing at someone else. But who are they truly laughing at? Who soon will be taking them out in the same way that Eros was taken out, but with less mercy? That will be Odysseus, so they can enjoy their laughter for this moment, because soon we will be laughing at their expense. 
Odysseus takes Eros outside, as I told him, leaves him there, and gives him a warning. Try not to be the king of strangers and beggars. And that was essentially where we needed to get to 